0: Let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, as we open your book, that you would speak to us, that you would make these things to come alive as we read this story, and that you would minister to our hearts that we would see the critical message that you have for us today. Lord, will you minister to us in our suffering And will you help us to see how you do that through the pages of Job today? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you a story. Our son Aaron had just passed his third birthday when our daughter Ariel was born. Aaron was a bright and happy child who, before the age of two, could identify a dozen different varieties of dinosaur and could patiently explain to an adult that dinosaurs were extinct. My wife and I had been concerned about his health from the time he stopped gaining weight at the age of eight months and from the time his hair started falling out after he turned one year old. Prominent doctors had seen him and attached complicated names to his condition and had assured us that he would grow to be a very short but otherwise healthy and normal in all other ways. But later on we discovered that our son's condition was called progeria. Or rapid aging. He went on to say that Aaron would never grow much beyond three feet in height. He would have no hair on his head or body. He would look like a little old man while he was still a child. And he would die in his early teens. How does one handle news like that? I was a young, inexperienced rabbi. And what I mostly felt that day was a deep, aching sense of unfairness. It didn't It didn't make sense. I had been a good person. I had tried to do what was right in the sight of God. And more than that, I was living a more than religiously committed life than most people I knew. Those people who had large, healthy families. I believed that I was following God's ways and doing His work. So how could this be happening to my family? if God existed, and if he was minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, how could he do this to me? Well, that, of course, is the introduction to Rabbi Harold Kushner's famous work, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And that book is his attempt to wrestle with the realities of what seemed to be unjust suffering to otherwise good people. And you may, you may be familiar with the book. It went on to become a, a bestseller. Um, he actually interacts with the book of Job in his work. And unfortunately, at least in my ju- judgment, I think he misses the point. But he raises a good question, doesn't he? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or as or has Warren Wiersbe uh, maybe said a little bit better, why do bad things happen to God's people? The book of Job exists in the canon of Scripture in part to wrestle with these types of questions. Where is God when suffering happens? If he is good and powerful, why does suffering exist? Why do bad things happen? It wrestles with what theologians call the problem of theodicy, the the universal problem of the existence of evil in the world. Questions of worship. Why do we worship? Why should we worship? How can we worship? When things like this afflict our way. The reality is we need Job because we are suffering people living in a very broken and painful world. And we could go around the room right now and all of you could catalog affliction for us. We need, we need Job, and uh, over the next five weeks, uh, Lord willing, what I'd like to do is take you on a tour of what, in my judgment, is the most comprehensive book on suffering in the whole canon of Scripture. Um, I just want to tell you, I love the book of Job. The book of Job changed my life, and it continues to challenge and help me as I navigate my course, as you do as well, through this broken world. So this morning, we're not going to get very far. We're just going to look at the first couple of chapters. Uh, I have no idea how I'm going to do this in five weeks, but you, you pray for me and, and we'll try to at least hit the high points of this uh, lengthy and yet also critical book. So if you haven't already done so, you can turn with me now uh, in your Bible to Job chapter 1. Uh, you may have found an outline in your bulletin this morning that will uh, give you a little navigational aid as we hit the main principles that we're going to look at in this um in this first section here and really the book of job is a story it's it's a narrative and it unfolds like you're going to a play or like you're watching a movie and so i want to try to present it to you one act or one scene at a time, and and try to do justice to the way that God himself preserved this book in the canon of Scripture. So we're just going to look at Act 1 this morning, or Scene 1, if you will, of the book of Job. And the first thing we need to do is we need to meet Job, okay? So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1 together. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And we stop right there, you can't see it, but right out of the gate, the way the narrative starts is to put the spotlight on the man Job. It literally starts with the man. And so we can picture the curtains pulling back, a single spotlight coming down on the stage, and there he is. In the land of Ooz, that's uh, northern, uh, modern day northern Saudi Arabia would be where it is today. The text goes on to tell us that that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Those are four different ways that the writer is trying to communicate to us that this was a man of integrity. This was a man who was above reproach. Those are terms that are characteristic of true believers in the Old Testament. The text isn't saying that Job was a perfect man. He's saying he was a genuine believer. He was a, an authentic, God-fearing man verse 2 he had seven sons and three daughters that were born to him his possessions also were 7,000 sheep 3,000 cattle 500 yoke of oxen 500 female donkeys and very many servants if you do the math he's got over 10,000 animals on his property and very many servants. In fact, the, the, the conclusion of the narrator here as he introduces us to Job is this. That man, here he is again, that man, spotlight still on him, was the greatest of all the men of the East. In terms of his wealth, in terms of his prominence, in terms of his reputation, in terms of his integrity, Job was unmatched in his day. He was greatly blessed with both family and possessions. Verse 4, now his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters um, to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. Now, this is interesting. Now, now we get to see sort of inside the inner room of Job as his grown kids are off, living life, we see this man coming to the throne of God every morning, interceding on behalf of his children. This was a holy man. This was a, a man whose, whose faith in God was serious. And he, he took it seriously. He practiced it regularly. And in a day and age, um, before the time of the Mosaic law and before the whole priestly system as we know it from the Bible is put into place, Job acted, so to speak, as as sort of the family priest. In fact, that's one of the things that helps us to date this book. The book of Job uh, probably occurred at the time of the patriarchs. Uh, He would be a contemporary with guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before the time of of Moses and the law. This was a man concerned for the spiritual welfare of his family and he would intercede, it says here, continually on behalf of his children, underscoring and highlighting the fact that this was a righteous and devout man. Given the fact that he has ten grown children, it's likely that Job is perhaps in his mid-sixties or perhaps even older at this time. So there's Job. And suddenly the curtain closes and opens again. The camera changes and we have a dramatically different scene change. The, the camera pans from earth now to the heavenly places. In verse 6, we see a shockingly different scene. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And this this is utterly amazing. This section that we're going to see in scripture right here is unmatched from every other place in Scripture. There there is no other place you can go in your Bible where you get the theological insight and behind-the-curtain details of what we're about to read here. We see... A scene of the heavenly places, perhaps from the very throne room of God, as the sons of God, which we find out later in the book are actually angels, come and they present themselves before God. And we notice also that there's another creature that accompanies the sons of God, and he is called probably in your Bible Satan. Is that what it, is that what your Bible says? And we have to remember because because we're we're uh, well-schooled in our theology, that Satan is not a proper noun for the devil. It's not his name. It's a title. And so literally what the Bible says here is the sons of God come to present them and Hasatan, which means the adversary, came with them. This is the adversary. This is, this is the opponent of God who comes with these angels before his throne. Now, immediately that raises lots of questions, doesn't it? What on earth is the devil doing in the presence of God? Can he even approach God on his throne? And, and who is he? And, and why is he here? And what is he? And there's all these questions. I know, I know, I know, I know. Our narrator is not interested in telling us the answer to any of those questions. They don't serve his purpose. And, of course, we know from other places in Scripture some background on Satan, that he was a created being, uh, a good angel originally who fell, and and we know some of those details. But the narrator says that's not the point right now. That's not what's really needed. What's needed is just to see that this adversary comes before God as the angels come presenting themselves before him. Verse 7. And the Lord says to the adversary, the Lord says to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Uh, you remember, that's consistent with what we know from other pla- other places of Scripture, that though Satan used to be a good angel, when he rebelled against God, where was he sent? He was sent to the earth, wasn't he? And that coincides with what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, so we see some of those things coming together, don't we? Verse 8, and the Lord says to Satan, and this is where we need to really start paying attention to the story. Have you considered my servant Job? Literally, he says, have you set his heart? See, what does that mean? It's a Hebrew way of saying, are you paying attention to this guy? Have you noticed him? For there is no one like him on the earth, God says, a, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And notice in this most interesting story, God takes the initiative to put the spotlight on Job in the eyes of the adversary. Verse 9. The adversary answers the Lord. Does Job fear God for nothing? Now, if you like to underline, star, highlight, circle things in your Bible, this is one of those places to do that. Okay? This question sets up the whole book. This is the setup. This is the place setting. This is the table being set for the rest of the story. In this question is a challenge. In Satan's question is more than a challenge. It's an accusation. It's an accusation against God Himself. And this is the key. And that leads us to the second thing that's on your outline there, okay? We need to recognize Satan's charge as an interpretive key of the book. Recognize Satan's charge as an interpretive key of the book. We'll talk about that a little bit today, but you'll see it unfold in the weeks ahead, okay? But you've got to remember that. He's charging God. He's accusing God. You say, how does that go? Well, well, Satan explains it. Look at verse ten. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But now, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely—the Hebrews emphatic here—he will surely curse you to your face. There's the charge. What's he saying? Satan's saying this to God. Of course Job worships you. Of course he loves you. Of course he fears you. Just look at how great you've made his life. But God, if you were to take away those blessings, he not only would stop worshiping you and loving you, he'd curse you. He'd blaspheme you in your very face. There's the charge. There's the challenge. Okay? Satan's charge is that God is not worthy of our worship in himself. His accusation is that God has to buy and purchase worship from his people by making their life really nice and comfortable. So I want you to see that this charge is attacking the very character and integrity and worth of God Himself. You see that? you got to get this now, okay? Satan can't imagine a world where people love God because of who He is. Alone. Satan cannot imagine a world... Where people worship God because He's worthy of it. Now, why would God bring this up? I mean, that's that's the question, right? Why does God bring this up? can, Can I tell you? Can I give it away? It's a setup. It's a setup. God puts the spotlight on Job in the eyes of the adversary on purpose. God intends to publicly thwart and humiliate Satan in the presence of all the heavenly hosts. And he's going to use Job to do it. It's a setup for God's plan. And the rest of the book is Satan's effort to prove his charge and God's glorious plan in and through the life of Job to thwart it. You with me? Okay, you got it? Okay, that's what Job is all about. So verse 12, back to the text. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. Now we need to notice here that every ounce of power given to Satan flows through the permissive hand of God himself. Only God is totally sovereign. Sovereign. The Bible does not paint a picture of some sort of cosmic boxing match, you know? In this corner, we have the creator of the universe, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, God, and the crowd goes wild, right? And in this corner, we have his arch enemy, the god of this world, the devil, this, and they come that, that's not the picture. Duking it out, blow by blow, that's not the picture at all. This is not the land of Star Wars and the force. We have a good side and a bad side. The universe is God's universe. And he runs it by his own sovereign power. And listen, the choke chain leash of Satan only extends as far as his master allows. As Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. So God permits, and then tragedy hits. Look back at the text. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, the day... Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding uh, beside them and the Sabaeans, those were a group of nomadic pirates that came and attacked them and took them and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another servant also came and said, The the fire of God, probably a a lightning storm, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, these servants are piling up in the living room of Job, running in and giving more bad news and running in and giving more bad news. The servant came in and said the Chaldeans formed three bands, another group of bad guys, and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and it struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And in one moment of one day, Job loses everything. Do you have children? You thinking about your children right now? Imagine if, in one phone call, you found out they were all dead. You have grandchildren? You have great grandchildren? One phone call, they're all gone. Did you get a financial summary this last week? End of year, your portfolio, your 401k, your pension, your savings account? Imagine that comes. And it's zero. It's gone. Job's livelihood, his retirement, his finances, his living, and all ten of his precious children are gone. Verse 20. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And we see this man's faith on display in his worship in the midst of tragic loss. But it's not done, is it? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered as he did the last time from roaming around on the earth and walking around it. Verse 3, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Again, the spotlight goes on him. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This would have been some sort of disease, some sort of skin disease that racked his body in a day before hydrocortisone or modern medical interventions. The text tells us that the only relief he could find was to pick a piece of broken pottery and scrape his wounds to try to bring some relief as they bled, as they became infected. And in that day, when you had some sort of infectious disease like that, you didn't get to reside in the city. This prominent man is exiled from his city. And the text tells us he is now residing amongst the ashes of the city dump. Verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And the $100 question is, Why? Right? Why is all this happening to such a righteous man? Look back at chapter 1. Look at this. God initiates, Satan challenges, God permits, Satan implements, the Sabaeans execute. Isn't that interesting? We see three dimensions or three causes of Job's suffering. God, Satan, and human interventions like the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and weather and things of that sort. But I want you to see... I want you to see what no character in this book, in this story, ever gets to see. That this tragedy is not in Job's life. This tragedy in Job's life is mostly about God and Satan. Do you see that? It's mostly about God and Satan. That leads us to the third thing I want you to see on your outline. Contemplate the purpose of your suffering that may extend beyond you. Contemplate the the purpose of your suffering that may extend beyond you. We don't get glimpses into the cosmic, angelic realm much in the Bible. We get a few here and a few there. And we don't want to assume that this sort of thing is behind all or even most of our suffering in the world. But, But, listen, but this text shows us that sometimes what is behind our suffering is some sort of cosmic cause. You know, we will spend lots of time in our study talking about, how the, about the purposes of suffering. But I want you to see the first one here this morning. You ready? Sometimes suffering is not primarily about you. You ever thought about that? Sometimes suffering is not primarily about you. It's about God's cosmic plan to thwart and humiliate his adversary. You know, suffering and affliction are very isolating uh, experiences, aren't they? They're dark. They're difficult times where we tend to turn within and things get blurry. It's very lonely. But never forget that how you respond always affects more than just you. In this case, Job's response is convincing evidence against Satan in the courtroom of God himself to thwart Satan's lies and to exonerate God and demonstrate his infinite worth and value. Have you ever considered that your personal suffering may actually be an invitation by God to participate in a battle larger than you have ever imagined? That's worth thinking about, isn't it? See, our suffering is not always about us. And sometimes it's not even primarily about us. It's an invitation to participate in something much greater than ourselves. And that's what we see here in this text. Now, now think with me for a minute. Where did all this start? All of this started when God brought a question to Satan, right? Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responds with a question. Does Job fear God for nothing? And that sets up the whole book. And I I want you to get this, okay? We'll see this. The whole book of Job has bookends to it. There's a, a bookend on the front, there's a bookend on the back, and then there's the book. Now, here's the thing. The bookends are questions. Satan's question to God, does Job serve God for nothing, is the bookend on the front of the book. And there's another question at the very end of the book, we'll see it in chapter 40, that's the closing of the book. And that's, that's fascinating when we realize that. These are two massively important questions that frame the whole book. In fact, in fact, this book of Job is a book of questions. Now, by my math, there are 261 questions in this book at least the way the NASB handles the punctuation. 261 questions in this book. I think that's the most in any other biblical book. And that's intentional. Why would a book on suffering be full of so many questions? Because that's what we do. Right? That's what we do when we're suffering. That's what we do in affliction. We ask lots of questions. Why? And what do I do? And how does this work? And will it be okay? There is intentionality in this most particular book on suffering to be piled up with so many questions because that's what the experience of suffering is like. In fact, we are going to see that we tend to ask really, really important questions when we're suffering. And that's part of the book. That's part of what we're supposed to see. We'll talk about that more next week. But what I want you to see this morning is this, okay? Stay with me, okay? If you're listening closely, suffering will ask you questions. I'm going to say that again. If you listen closely, suffering will ask you questions. Every occasion of suffering is actually an essential inquiry into the most important part of you, your heart, your spiritual system. Let me illustrate this. Notice that Satan's challenge to God gets translated into unique suffering designed to ask Job that very question. I lost you. Okay, look up for a second. What's Satan's challenge to God? Does, does Job fear you, serve you for no reason? So the suffering comes in and is designed by God to ask Job that very question. Job, why do you worship? Do you see that now? Suffering asks you questions. Not literally, of course, not audibly, but the experience. It asks you questions. You with me now? That's what's happening here his suffering is getting translated into a very, very important question. That's the fourth thing on your notes. Listen for the questions that suffering asks. Listen for the questions that suffering asks. Now, I want to show you two very important questions that Job's suffering asks him here. Okay. Now, I get these because Job only talks two times in these first two chapters. And both times that Job... Talks, he is in a sense answering the questions that his suffering asks. You with me? Okay, good. Okay, so question number one. Okay, let's look at question number one. We see it in verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Look back there. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's the first question? Job, why do you worship? Why do you worship? Perhaps perhaps the most tragic error of our generation regarding worship is that we tend to equate it with music. In fact, you know the joke, right? What do you call a Christian that's playing his guitar? Worship, right? That's where you're supposed to laugh. But anyway, that's how we think about it today. And, and, and it may be worship, right? We're not saying that can't be worship, but that's not the heart of it. That's not the point. If we survey the Bible regarding worship, we, we come to see that worship is the operating system of humanity. We were made to worship, and we are always doing worship. And as we look at various biblical texts, we don't have time to look at them all today, but as we do a survey of worship in the Bible, here's what we discover. Worship is about your allegiance. It's about what you love. It's about your loyalty. It's about what you submit to. It's about what you praise, what you talk about. It's about satisfaction and where you look to for joy and happiness. Worship is what motivates you. It determines actions. It sets the course of your life and it ultimately determines what or who you serve. And surrounding all of those love, serve, joy, happiness, contentment, allegiance, loyalty, affection, right in the middle of the worship system is what you value. Boil it all down. You will worship what you value the most. We might say this, worship is what happens when we value something so highly that it captures our affections, it motivates our actions, it wins our love, it determines our allegiance, it drives our praise, it submits our will, and it brings our joy. That's worship. And we were made to worship God, why? Because He is of highest value. The crown of value is on his head, isn't it? And and that's what this whole thing was designed for. Now, Now, something tragically happened when sin came into the world. Romans talks about this. We'll look at it another time. When sin came into the world, human beings that were made to value God and thus worship him literally ripped the crown off of God and we want we run through life now, putting that crown on all sorts of other things, and we worship and serve those things instead of the creator to whom the crown, crown rightly belongs and that 's the problem that, that 's why we say every problem is really a worship disorder right because we 're putting the crown on all the wrong things, and we 're worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator and becoming a christian means we repent of that we see the folly and 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 the the foolishness of that and and we turn away from those things that we're worshiping and we take that crown and we put it right back on god and we submit to and worship him as the most valuable god and savior that he is now we see that in the gospels don't we because jesus said this on one occasion the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man finds it. And for joy over it, what does he do? He goes and he sells everything he has and buys the field. Now that's, a, that's in story form, right? Well, Paul says the same things in the text we said in Philippians. He says, I look at all these other things. I've been putting the crown on in my life. And I finally realized that it's all rubbish. It's all loss if I could somehow gain Christ. Because to know Him and to value Him and to see His worth is the point of life. See, that's the gospel message. That's that's what Christianity is all about. It's knowing Christ as, as the surpassing value that it is. Now, if you're a believer, here's the question that this text raises. And it's a question that your suffering asks. You ready? Why do you worship? Do you worship God because you ultimately value Him? Or because you love His gifts? Because you love His comforts? Because you love your stuff? But when you worship him, when all his gifts are taken away, you demonstrate him to be of supreme value and worth. And that brings him glory and it humiliates the God of his world and his slanderous lies and his blasphemous charges. Listen, when you whine instead of worship, Satan wins. And though because of the finished work of Jesus, Satan's neck is already bolted down into the divine guillotine of the great judge and edu- execu- executioner of heaven, our worship failure in suffering gives Satan one more blasphemous speech before his annihilation. And that speech can have eternal negative consequences to a watching world that is already suspicious and convinced that Christianity is just a game of make-believe. We can flip this principle around, can't we? Suffering will expose what you really value. Satan knows exactly what buttons to push on the cash register of your heart to make it open up. And see what's inside. And believe me, suffering will open you up like nothing else in life will. And if you don't like what you see when you are opened up, there's good news. We have a great Savior, we have a God who is in the business of transforming our insides so that we will value Him and we will praise Him and we will find Him alone to be worthy. There's hope. There's hope in our suffering, isn't there? And as Job stared down at ten freshly dug graves we can see the devil slyly bending his ear to the graveyard, expecting to hear blasphemy. And what he hears is, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be his glorious name. And he is thwarted. Are you listening to your suffering? It's talking to you. Why do you really worship? Well, there's a second round. Satan says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. Afflict him physically. He will curse you to your face. And that leads to the second question that your suffering is asking you. It's on your notes there. Will you equally receive both good and hard things from God? Will you equally receive both good and hard things from God? Look back at chapter 2, verse 10. As round number 2 of affliction comes his way, his wife gives up, she cracks, she loses it, curse God and die. She says, verse 10, he answers her and says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That's a Hebrew idiom. He's saying, "Shall shall we not accept everything that God brings our way? And if you think about it, it's really the same question as the first one asked a different way, isn't it? Will you submit to the wisdom and goodness of your God in affliction? I asked my kids last night this question. Why do you react differently when I give you candy versus when I give you chores? They couldn't come up with a good answer other than they like candy more than chores. But I think they're absolutely right. We like God's candy more than we like His chores. We like the things that make us feel good in the moment more than we like things that will help us and benefit us eternally. We tend to be so moment-oriented and we miss the big picture of what really matters. We must trust the good hand of our God whether what He brings feels more like chores than candy. Let's go a step further. We need to trust that what God brings us from His good and kind hand, even if it is unspeakably painful, still comes from His good Fatherly hand. Does God know what's best? Do we trust Him? Do we really believe that He's good and He's gracious and He desires the best for His children? You know, suffering is noisy. Anxiety is loud, fear is turbulent, life is blurry, suffering is disorienting and painful. It's hard to even have a second to compose your heart and quiet it down. But listen, you need to intentionally turn down the volume of the noise surrounding your suffering so that you can hear the still, small voice of the eternally significant message that your suffering is telling you. The questions it's asking you. Are you listening? Because your suffering is talking to you. Here's the fifth thing. Here's the fifth thing. Respond to your suffering in humble faith. Respond to your suffering in humble faith. We see in Job's response at the end of chapter 1, this amazing act of worship in the midst of pain and loss and grief. Let me, just, let me just bullet point for you what we learn from his response. And these will be themes throughout our study. Look at the first thing. Submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event of your life. Submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event in your life. Job does not say, I earned and the Sabeans took away. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. You, you know what's crazy? No one in this book, from Job to his friends, to the narrator, to anybody, nobody looks at Job's affliction and says, The Sabaeans did it! Those bad Sabaeans. No one in the book says, Satan did it. It's all his fault. The universal conclusion of Job's affliction is that it came from the hand of his good and gracious father. That doesn't mean you always understand why, but it does mean you know the source is good. We need to learn to see God's good hand in and over all our affliction. Number two, we need to interpret all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of His grace. Interpret all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of His grace. Look back at chapter 1, verse 21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now now stop right there. I don't think he was making a joke. I don't think he was giving us a Sunday school lesson while inside he was believing something different. I believe that Job meant exactly what he said. But if you're like me, you read that and you go, how could he say that? His ten children just died. He's got his grieving wife who's sobbing on his shoulder. The Listen, the only explanation for Job's words were that he was interpreting his life through the lens of grace. Follow me. Naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. What's he saying? We come into the world with nothing, we leave with nothing. Well, where do we get all this stuff? The Lord gives. And thus the Lord can take away. What's he saying? He's saying, if I have something in life, it's grace. If God gives me something that I didn't have when I came into the world, guess what? Grace. Everything we have, friends, is grace. Everything we enjoy in this life are gifts of God's kind grace to us. Which is why when God gives them to you, we can thank Him. And when He removes them from you, we can nonetheless thank Him because all of these things are gifts of His grace. They're undeserved merit from His hand. There are no earned commodities or deserved blessings in life. Only grace from the Lord. Now listen. Seen through the eyes of grace, there are really no ultimate gains or losses in life because we already possess far more than we deserve. Make sense? And what do we possess most of all? We have Him. We have Him and that can never be taken away. Number three, acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. Acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. Looking back at verse 21, Job is not fighting God for the crown of lordship. Listen, listen, he's submitting to it. In fact, that's what the, that's what the word worship means here. The word actually means to submit. Job challenges us that when God removes his blessings, are we fighting him on it? Or are we submitting to it? Number four, worship and praise God in every circumstance because He is worthy. Worship and praise God in every circumstance because He is worthy. If we value Him above all, right? That's worship. If we value Him above all, even over His good and kind gifts, we worship. Not because our life is nice or because He makes our life comfortable but because He alone is worthy. He's always worthy. He cannot be unworthy regardless of what happens to us. Number five, recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him for evil. Recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him for evil. Look at verse 22. The narrator tells us, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, this is something that might be a little bit confusing. We'll talk about it more in weeks to come. But Job says something that's counterintuitive. He says, God caused my calamity but he's not morally responsible for the evil from it. Did you get it? God caused my calamity, but he is not morally responsible for the evil in it. That is the mystery of God's providence. We'll come back to that next time. Number six, accept whatever God brings about in your life without sinning. Accept whatever God brings about in your life Without sinning, he says to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And the text tells us in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Notice that Job's righteous responses to suffering are experienced with great sorrow and grief in his heart. he's He's not having a tea party at the graveyard as he says these things. He is worshiping God from the heart in great sorrow and great grief. In fact, Right responses in suffering are usually accompanied with unpleasant but godly emotions such as grief. Listen, godliness in suffering is not indifference or painlessness or Christian stoicism. It is a quiet, submissive, worshiping heart in the midst of sorrow, difficulty, and pain. Your suffering is talking to you. Are you listening? Who will you worship? Why do you worship? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these challenging principles from this story. Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us. Work in our hearts in light of what we've heard that we might value and worship you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.